0: Welcome to Talking With Tech. My name is Chris Bouguet and I'm here with Rachel Nadel. What's going on, Rachel?
1: Hey, Chris, we have a question today. Ooh, excellent.
0: All right, I love
1: question time. All right. So the question says, I've recently taken on a new caseload with several AAC users. I don't know much about AAC, but I've been listening to your podcast and reading as much as I can. I'm conflicted by the concept of robust vocabulary. I want to provide my patients with a wide, varied and robust vocabulary on their AAC systems. And I want to assume capability. However, it really does seem like many of my patients are overwhelmed by the number of choices, having so many buttons and such a large field. What is the priority here? fewer buttons with smaller vocabularies that might be successful, though limiting, or many, many buttons with limitless vocabulary for varied models and autonomy. I truly don't know what to do and I feel like I'm giving parents whiplash by saying we need more words and there are too many buttons here. Please provide some guidance. Thanks for all you do.
0: Rachel, could you repeat one sentence? You probably know what sentence I'm going to ask you to repeat.
1: I I do. I do, Chris. However, it really does seem like many of my patients are overwhelmed by the number of choices having so many buttons and such large field.
0: I want to dig into that sentence uh, because this is something we hear quite a bit or I see quite a bit. I think would be consistent. Do you hear people say that or have that same sort of sentiment?
1: Yes. I think that that's like when you're thinking about a robust vocabulary and robust AAC system, I'd say it's the number one kind of um, pushback maybe or fear that's instilled when like people feel like there's so many words, it has to be too much.
0: And so what I really want to dig in there is that word seems. It seems overwhelming. So let's rephrase that question and say, or rephrase that statement and say, what evidence do you have to support the claim that it's too overwhelming? Uh, Another way to maybe phrase that is um, what behaviors are you seeing? Um, What actions is the person doing that has led you to that conclusion?
1: Yeah, I think that's fair. And I think that, when we start to ask that question to ourselves, sometimes perhaps we do have some things that we can list off, right? But I think overwhelmingly we have the assumption that it's too much as the adults around an AAC user. Um, and I oftentimes think our students are fully capable of, you know, a robust vocabulary with lots and lots of words, but it's the adults around them who are all freaking out about the system. Right. And like, it's so many words and it's too complicated. And you know, so, but that's a problem too, in and of itself. Right. So we really have to balance these two things it
0: is but let's break them down into each one because there's two separate problems that are separate but related right so we've asked that specific question in talking with tech lives or in different presentations where we've done is well what evidence do you have to support it and that what sometimes comes back is well they've when i give them the device with all these words on it, they start pushing buttons at what seems to be random, sort of exploring it and not really knowing it, and it doesn't seem intentional. And our response to that is...
1: How do you know it's not intentional?
0: Yes. (laughs) You don't know that it's not intentional, but then also a big question to ask is, is the student, the person, are they literate? because if you were, you say this all the time in our presentations, if you were given a system and the text underneath was either not present or in a language you didn't know, let's say for me, it's Chinese. I don't know how to read Chinese, but don't say that was what the characters were. What would I do given a system with pictures like this? I would start hitting the but- buttons at random, listening to it, trying to figure out what they were. And is that what we're seeing with kids do is if you give them a a tool that has lots of words on it and they start hitting the buttons that seem to be random, does that seem overwhelming? Or does it seem like they're using their, the skills they have to try and figure it out?
1: Exactly. I also like to think, you know, what happened the first time we all had smartphones in our hands? We were like, how does this thing work? What does this button do? How do I get to that other screen that I was just on? You know, there's like, learning curve with technology for people. And it's the same for our students. And so, you know, we have to give some grace to our students who, especially students who aren't literate, right. And are learning language, right. So they might push the button different, but they haven't had enough experiences with that word in a meaningful way to actually understand what the word means. So it will present as if it doesn't feel intentional, but the intention is that they're learning how to explore their system. They're learning different words. And then us as adults come in and we give them meaningful experiences through modeling with those words.
0: Uh, the example, you know, I love my analogies, right? The analogy that I would use to to help people wrap their brains around the second question here about or the second component of this is just like the adults are the ones who feel overwhelmed by it, but maybe that it's it, when we're imposing that on the student as well, because that certainly is legitimate, right? We've seen that too. Like here, here's thousands of words, um, or here's an array of of uh, the home screen, and man, does that look overwhelming to me as an adult? So it. Must must be overwhelming to the student. Well, how did you learn the to keyboard like that? That's the analogy I like to use is, when you were uh, first learning to be a typist and type, did you only have some of the letters and then slowly over time we added them to make sure we weren't overwhelming you? No, you had access to all the entire keyboard and then we just did our instruction around, okay, we're gonna focus on ASDF, ASDF, practice that, practice that. You can ignore the other stuff. And so I feel like that's, again, the, the, the right foot to lead this dance with is All right, adults, yes, at first, that whole QWERTY keyboard might look intimidating. Just practice spelling your name on it or just practice uh, finding these few letters. So the same analogy would roll over to AAC. Yes, okay, it looks like there's lots of words here, but you only have to focus on these two words for this week. Can you practice finding these two words? And next week, let's find two more words and slowly build up your skills over time.
1: I think the challenge is, you know, when we are the ones who get to decide what words are visible and not visible, then we run into really dangerous territory because we are, you know, not only limiting our students with what they get to say and what they have opportunities to see modeled in their everyday experiences. um, But, you know, we oftentimes I see teams get stuck there. So, you know, getting stuck with only a few words until we get to some level of mastery is the wrong move. It's not fair to our students and it's not the way that kids learn, right? We, we can't expect for our kids to get to certain levels of mastery before we kind of reveal more vocabulary. Um, and I think that this is a big challenge. I see a, a lot of the teams that I'm on Um, theoretically, if we are going to limit vocabulary, meaning we'll use a masking strategy. So to mask some of the vocabulary on the homepage, so it doesn't feel as overwhelming. And I would argue that we should only do that if we have evidence to suggest that we need to do that, right? We shouldn't just start with that type of an approach. Um, But if we need to do that, and everyone theoretically can get more familiar and comfortable with, uh, you know, masked vocabulary or some of the buttons being hidden for, you know, the time being. Then theoretically, over time, everyone on the team, both adults who are modeling and the student, should be fine adding new vocabulary every week. They should be okay with that. Right. Um, And I think that, again, this is where we get stuck with kids who have had the same AAC system, you know, with 10 words for six years, you know, and it's just like, we can't get stuck there because we have to expose our students to lots of, you know, vocabulary and lots of opportunities where they can use that vocabulary and see it used in meaningful ways. And we're really doing our, our students a disservice if we're not providing robust vocabularies.
0: Um, let It's. It's interesting you use that word robust. Let's talk about that word. It gets thrown around a lot in AAC. And so when we talk about having, uh, you said robust vocabulary, but let's talk about it. Just what is make. What makes a system robust? So it's what makes a a tool robust? I think there's a pretty short list. Um, tell me if you agree with this. So the first thing that a system needs to have is access to core vocabulary. Core vocabulary has to be part of a system. Agreed? Woo. Yeah, <laughs> of course. Okay. Second thing is we're talking about core vocabulary. It's not just the root word, but we got to have the grammatical markers, right? So I, N, G, plural S, ed, that kind of stuff. Does the system have some way of, uh, does the tool have some way of, of, of of allowing a user to use those grammatical markers again.
1: Absolutely. Yes. We don't think about grammar and morphological things in the beginning, um, which we should right? like there's no reason that our students shouldn't have exposure to grammar and morphological changes. um, you know, alongside of the words that we're modeling, but we absolutely need to have that feature because truly in order for anyone to say whatever they want to say, they have to have access to morphological changes. And if
0: they really want to say whatever they want to say, then you absolutely need to have a a keyboard. Now, there's some things you don't want to have to learn to type in every single time because you might be saying them so frequently, even though it wasn't part of your vocabulary that was out of the box, right? We always use the example of um, our dog's name, right? Your dog's name might not be a word programmed in there, but you don't want to have to go to the keyboard and type it out every single time. So you want to be able to actually program words in as well, right? Is that so? That's another thing that the tool needs to have to make it robust is the ability to add vocabulary fair.
1: Yes. Add vocabulary and also, um, some phrase based language too. Um, because sometimes we need to have quick access to a phrase. Um, and again, if we're thinking about long-term AAC and we're listening to AAC users, um, there's some things that they need to have quick access to. They don't want to type out every single, you know, phrase or sentence that they say over and over again. Um, you know, thinking about rate enhancement is something that again, I don't think we think about in the initial stages, but we need to be designing with the end in mind and thinking long-term.
0: Yeah. And, and, uh, I think Alexandria and Marge, who are about to hear part two uh, coming up, would totally agree with that, right? I mean, is that fair? Like they'd be like, yeah, you gotta be able to program things in that are, that are phrases, right? Uh, so that, that's another reason you wanna have that as a, as a tool um, or as a feature of the, of the AAC tool that you're thinking about. Another thing you might be thinking about is uh, to make it robust is, or at least in the consideration of, of a robust tool is, well, how can I get to the, the words with a minimal number of hits? Right. So uh, the more activations I have, the harder to model, the more, more uh, burdensome it's going to be to find the words and hit the words or access the words. So how can I get there as quickly as possible? Is that also fair?
1: Yeah. I would say, you know, the system that supports motor planning, the both the most, meaning like I can learn when I touch this device three times, I get to the word that I'm looking for. Um, and again, I think that one of the challenges with, this idea of this question, right? This robust vocabulary and what, you know, what words reveal and things like that, um, kind of also goes into this idea of, you know, how, what's the grid size that we start with? Like, do we start with huge buttons of, you know, just 10 buttons on a screen? Um, or can we try to, again, start with smaller buttons or a bigger, larger grid size, knowing that students will need all of the vocabulary and we don't want to have to navigate into, you know, 10 different folders to get to where we're going because that's harder and it's going to take more time for students to learn. Um, so I think that this kind of also goes along with the question is this idea of supporting motor planning and the least amount of hits, the easier is to access your vocabulary. Um, and that's important. So I feel like that's pretty,
0: that's the the list, right? If you were to just go back and listen to this and jot those down, those are sort of the, okay, what is robust? I think we just defined it. Is that, what do you think?
1: I think so. Um, I was trying to think if there's anything else. I mean, there's obviously features that are really nice to have, um, but those are the essentials. So whenever you're thinking about AAC, you want to make sure these essentials are in the systems that you are utilizing, recommending um, or trialing for students. Because if it's not, then, you know, we really need to kind of go back to the drawing board and figure out, um, you know, what could we use um, that is robust,
0: Yeah, one of those features might be word prediction, right? I would say so. Many uh, tools now do have a robust a robust tool will have a keyboard, right? We just said that's sort of a necessary component. But does that keyboard also have word prediction built in? That might be another consideration that you throw into the list. Uh, But it's certainly you need to have a keyboard for
1: it to be robust. All right. I I don't know. Did we we answer the question? I hope so. I mean, I I just want to kind of mention that. I realize this does feel like a challenge, right? And I think that the person who asked this question obviously is struggling with this idea. She's like, I know that I should provide access to robust vocabulary, but how do I actually like figure out how to actually implement? And I think kind of to summarize what we said in the beginning, Chris, it's like figuring out what is, you know, what can the student do? So. Sometimes I'm in a situation where I feel like the student is fully capable of the full, you know, system, all of the words, right? But the adults are the ones who are like, I don't really know, it's too much and all these things. And so even if we have a student who's capable of doing the full system and can, you know, learn and watch our models and, you know, imitate those models, then if we have adults who aren't comfortable enough to model on the system then students won't use that system right and so it is a balancing act figuring out the kind of optimal level of you know vocabulary but i think the key here is if you do decide to mask if you do decide to hide some vocabulary you have, you can't get stuck there. You have to keep increasing vocabulary over time. And I think that that's kind of the takeaway message here is that, you know, there may be some reasons that you mask vocabulary or you limit some of the vocabulary to start, but we absolutely can't get stuck there. Um, and so often I see us kind of just get stuck and we don't need to get stuck. We can definitely keep introducing new vocabulary over time. And I also think just like, we have to stop expecting perfection out of our AAC users. This idea, that like every single thing you say has to be completely intentional and accurate and appropriate within the certain context that you're in. And that's just not realistic for any, for any child that's learning language. Um, they play around with language. They have an idea in their head that isn't related to what's being talked about, you know, in that moment. And that's okay. Um, I think that we look at it like, Oh, they're not being accurate or they're not being intentional. And it's like, what is our expectation here? That they're a hundred percent perfect a hundred percent of the time. Um, I think that we really need to question what we're asking our students and what we're asking of them and really be more realistic about our expectations and more flexible with the fact that our students are exploring language, they're learning language. And, you know, that's part of the process is, you know, maybe using a word that doesn't fit and then us attributing meaning to that. And then therefore the students learning what that word actually means.
0: Teaching. It's teaching. Exactly. So I I guess that means, Rachel, that we did answer the question. And I guess that means we can start our interview.
1: Yep, we are going into part two of the interview we did with Marge Blanc and Alexandria Zakos. We'd like to thank all of the wonderful Patreon supporters who make this show possible. This podcast is funded by listeners just like you who've signed up at patreon.com backslash talkingwithtech to show their support because of the generosity of our amazing Patreon community, we're able to pay Luke and Michaela, our podcast producer and audio engineer, who keep the show looking and sounding great. Patreon supporters also receive bonus content, such as early access to interviews, behind the scenes recordings, additional curated resources and materials, and so much more. Check it out at patreon.com backslash Now let's head back into the episode.
2: Gestalt in stage one, this delayed echolalia, that is how a child is mainly communicating in stage one. When they move to stage two, that is called mitigated um, mit- mitigation. So they start to use mitigated gestalts or they whittle down, Marge reminded me of this a while ago, uh, the larger gestalt. Okay, so... Um, Let's one of my favorite, favorite that I use all the time, gestalts from one of my clients is, don't worry, I'll help you find your mama. And that came from a Dora episode. And she kind of used it every single time something was lost or she couldn't find something or she just had that feeling like, I want something, but I just don't know where it is. And so that was her gestalt, that super long thing. And so when she got to stage two... And she was able to mitigate it. I started hearing, like, don't worry, I'll help you find grandma. Or, um, don't worry, I'll help you find the ball. And she was able to kind of do what we call mix and match, right? So she took a chunk from one gestalt and a chunk from the other and she put them together. Now, you might also hear just that, um, that trimming down of, don't worry, I'll help you find your mama. So she might go, don't worry now that's stage two right because she was able to just cut it off and um that means she's starting to move in her language development um, to being able to communicate more flexibly um in stage two um so we either have that trimming down or that mixing and matching now stage three i always call this the magic stage It feels like magic to me when a kid gets to stage three, because they are then able to free all the words from their previous gestalts. So they are in stage three for the first time, recognizing words as units. So it's almost like our gestalt language processors have like an extra two stages before they get to the beginning of where our analytic language processors are. So finally at stage three, they're like, oh, these words are actual units. And I can say this word alone, blue, or I can say this word next to another word, blue car, or I can say car blue. And there is um, a lot of that combining happening with adjectives and nouns and noun plus nouns or that standalone word. And stage three, the other magical pieces, it's referential. So our Gestalt processors are finally getting to that point where they can reference and point to things. And you'll hear from a lot of autistic parents or I'm sorry, parents of autistic kids that their child never pointed or they never were able to reference things. And that's because most of them are Gestalt processors. So that's actually not happening for them until they get to stage three. Um, And then I'm just going to end with stage four. Um, That is beginning grammar. And that is finally when we start hearing the novel utterances. So the two to three to four words being combined together in that beginning grammar, like I go find him um, and or uh, that fall down. So we're going to start hearing stuff like that. Um, And Marge, you know, was able also to um, come up, or not come up, I'm sorry, but write about stages five and six in her book, which is then complex to advanced grammar. And it's just continuing to work on grammar in those final two stages. Um, I tried to go really fast. I feel like I'm out of breath. Marge, do you have anything to add to that?
3: <laughs> no, and, and just to add to what Alex said about stage three, you know, we as... Um, Analytic processors, most of us, you know, uh, maybe it's more common among females than males. I'm not totally sure. Um, But, you know, we have wanted kids to get to stage three. We want them to get to the single word. We're so excited. Um, And then we're so excited because, ah, finally we get to do grammar. But then, like you've said, Chris, you know, when you go back to an analytic processor at that single word, stage and you look at that child getting one word plus another word, you know, it's not really grammar, you know, it's more like Alex said, it's like ball, blue, ball, car, you know, it's not, it really isn't grammar, but it is combining. And it's kind of a cognitive process of putting concepts together but that's not foreign to us, you know, as SLPs, we know about the mommy sock stage and we know that we don't have to have word order when we start, when little analytic processors put two words together. So we know about this, you know, but we still want to just move forward. Like, can't we just, you know, give them a sentence strip and make them make them do, you know, grammar. Well, no. And, you know, there, there are no shortcuts to any of this. And we have to remember that little analytic processors were very young when they were doing this two word thing. And it was simple. They didn't have a whole lot of language in their heads when they were putting one word plus another word. But boy, our GLPs, especially as they get older, they've got a lot of stuff in their head and, you know, they need to kind of unpack it and get down to that. Oh, it's a word. It's a word. Really? It's a word, 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 that word, you know, gray, sky, blue, car, sock, my, you know, before we move into grammar too fast. And I guess, you know, my, the, the, the phraseology that I use there is grammar without content is just empty. Mm-hmm. And so stage three really does get to be the vocabulary stage and we need to help our GLPs play with words. And that's where, you know, I don't want to get into the AAC too fast, but that's where it's all built in with their robust systems. You know, they get to play with word plus word before we get into really truly grammar.
2: Yeah. And the problem is right now, the way that we're approaching AAC with our autistic GLPs or our GLPs that need support is we're jumping straight to stage three. So we are not looking at how to tailor things for stages one and two. Um, And the whole reason Marge and I are out here talking about this nonstop, like crazy people and spreading (laughs) the word is because we have been doing a disservice to our kids all of these years. Like it, felt so shocking to me when I read Marge's book, because at that point I had been an SLP for 13 years in 2016. And I thought, what in the heck was I doing for 13 years? Because as SLPs, we get frustrated, like, oh, this kid's not making progress and what can I do different and this and that. And to think that the whole reason why a large percentage of my kids were not making process is for progress is because I was treating them like analytic language processors that were disordered I was I was looking at them like they were disordered analytic processors not having a clue that they were actually gestalt processors on a typical normal language developmental journey but I knew nothing about it so like most SLPs I was like okay there's something wrong with their language development they need more words I need to do this with them and of course no progress. So that is why I'm so passionate about this. And I am just like talking about it nonstop everywhere because we've all had blinders on. And unfortunately, a lot of our kids have been suffering.
0: So let me just, if a kid is, is starting to learn grammar and individual words, then they're not, an, they're not a, a Gestalt language processor.
3: They we have evidence to suggest. What's their background?
0: What do you mean? Like, if we, oh,
3: like, are they two years old?
0: Yeah, let's let's say, typically by two years old, we're, we we sadly, in many cases, we haven't introduced um, a, any sort of intervention yet. Um, so, so let's say it's by let's go let's go the four year old, a four year old who is um, using echolalia, and maybe saying a handful of things that are not echoing. And so we might introduce AAC and start teaching. Let me model some words for you and some, and some morphological endings as well. So stop stopping, go going. And if they start to pick those up and start using those, then they're not a gestalt language processor, right? Cause they're making well, you progress. Would have using
3: done, them. You would have done many, many language samples by then. So you would know. And we don't want to just willy-nilly decide, willy-nilly, what kind of a gestalt is that? (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) You wouldn't want to just start and just experiment because it's like fun or something for us. You know, we're tempted to do that, but we really need to do our assessments. And I will um, quote um, Dr. Lillian Stigler here because I loved the fact that she said this. And she said, language samples Are our data. That's what we need to do. And so you might say, well, my hypothetical four-year-old isn't talking or talking enough that I can do that. And we can, we can address that in a moment, but let's just say your, your four-year-old is talking a blue streak, a blue streak, huh? (laughs) Um, Then, you know, (laughs) we're going to do um, Alex and I are going to make you do language samples and figure it out before you decide how you're going to treat.
0: So everything sort of hinges. I'm sorry, that's that's really uh, hyperbolic <laughs> of me, but a lot hinges on understanding at a very early age whether the kid's one or the other. Right. Well, that, but. It, it,
3: no.
2: I mean, everything hinges on language samples. So you can get a 14-year-old that walks in and you have no clue what they were like as a two-year-old. It doesn't matter. Gather 20 to 25 language samples of their current language and you're going to figure it out. Once you understand the natural language acquisition framework, you can start scoring those language samples and go, okay, I see that this kid is in stage four. So maybe they're a gestalt processor that made it there without support because guess what? There's a lot of them out there. Not everybody needs support. I've talked to tons of autistic adults that despite terrible past therapy made it to flexible original language on their own. So I'm very clear when I educate people that I'm not saying everyone needs speech therapy support because people don't. But This kid, for whatever reason, ended up on your caseload, Chris. You look at those language samples and you can go, All right, he's at stage four. I need to start looking at grammar, or he's analytic and he needs to work on grammar. Either way, you're addressing grammar. Mm -hmm.
1: Can I Mm -hmm. ask a question? Um, this is like a, my own clinical question that's been burning in my mind. So I'm just going to take an opportunity to ask the experts here. Um, I have a lot of students on my caseload who are autistic who feel like most of their vocabulary is nouns and referential. Like they're doing a lot of labeling, but they aren't doing a lot else. So is that, does that mean that they've like skipped over one and two or they're in three? I mean, what, tell me, tell me more. You're shaking your head, Alexandra.
2: I actually just beat you. It's so funny. You're asking this. Cause I just did a post today.
1: Oh my gosh. I'll to check it out.
2: Um, it's called what is a Tot gestalt? I don't even know if you saw it Marge or not, but, um, okay. These kids that you're working with, Rachel, I'm going to just venture a guess that they have either been in compliance-based therapies in ABA or have been treated like analytic processors. For sure. So that language that they're using is not their true language. It's not spontaneous language. It is all taught. So when we talk about taking language samples, we are listening for their spontaneous language. Okay, I'm only recording things they're saying spontaneously. If they're saying, What's that ball and stuff like that? I immediately am like, That's not stage three. Like somebody was drilling them. That is why they're going ball, strawberry, book. Um, And unfortunately, a lot of our kids fall in this category. Because of past therapies and the way people have been communicating with them, they have all these taught gestalts
1: that makes a lot of sense to me. And I feel like oftentimes parents are, you know, just like working on labeling, right. Because they don't know what else to do. And they're like, I need my kid to start developing a vocabulary. And so, you know, when they start getting one or two nouns, it's like, Oh, let's do more. Let's label everything in the environment. Um, so that makes a lot of sense to me, um, that it's, it's learned and memorized and it's not their true you know, language processing necessarily. That's not the kind of intrinsically motivated language that they develop. Um, it's more just a result of intensive intervention. And like you said, compliance driven.
3: But well, we have to also remember that the, the child who's at stage one developmentally is taking in any language as a gestalt. So it's a single word gestalt. If that child happened to have escaped ABA and gotten to stage two, and there were these taught single words, it's possible that that child might be able to put those single words into a frame to use Ann Peter's word and plug in like Alex was saying about the mix and match. And so if they're at stage three and got there on their own, they might be then you could have vocabulary. That's really rare though, by the way. So don't take that as a model. No, the very common thing is that they're at stage one, they're a little kid, they get all these stage one single word gestalts. And we know that at stage two, they've got to break them down and you can't break down a single word unless you're doing morphology. But anyway, that's another topic.
2: (laughs) So Rachel, Now that you know that, do you know what you would do with those kids?
1: I mean, I've learned from you, Alexandria, that I would teach more gestalts and more like longer, more mitigatable phrases, um, which is what I have been doing. Um, But I I think it's just, I I think this whole like single word gestalt, which I totally I totally get that because I have kids who say orange juice for all drinks. (laughs) And so like, that's a really good example of how, I mean, I guess orange juice is technically two words. Um, but that's like something that we would call, you know, what I would normally call is like overgeneralization. That's what we would hear, right? Oh, they're overgeneralizing, you know, milk to mean all drinks. Um, or they're just saying milk all day. I now know, you know, that is like a single word gestalt that they've Mm -hmm. learned. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so anyway, to answer your question, I feel like I would, I would teach more gestalts that are easier, you know, down in stage two to break down and mitigate.
2: So I'm going to be nitpicky and say, we're not going to use the word teach. <laughs> okay. Right.
0: Okay. Good. So, Cause that was not, that no. was not registering my mind. Like how do you teach? So we're not teaching
2: stuff? anything. Um. I was actually just explaining this to today to someone in my post who kind of asked a similar question. Like, We are naturally modeling this during what I call child-led play therapy or just life. If you're a parent at home, you're naturally modeling this. It's not with the expectation that the child is going to say it. So I'm not drilling practicing. I'm not encouraging memorization. I'm just naturally modeling it while we're engaged in something that is enjoyable. And the hope is that the child is going to spontaneously pick that up as part of their language. Now, how do I know that they're probably going to do that? Because most of them already have. They've picked up things from inadvertent language models or movies or something they watched on YouTube because it resonated with them. So a lot of what Marge and I teach others to do is to model naturally by playing with their intonation, by having a lot of affect, by creating something magical, fun or dramatic. And so the child has more of an opportunity to accept that language into, you know, um, something that is their own.
1: And I think this leads into the challenge with AAC, which is, you know, then we, what do we do when we have AAC systems set up for analytical language processing and single word acquisition and then two word, and then, you know, from a motoric standpoint, that is the challenge, right? Is that, you know, how do we balance these two things? How do we know that like, yes, I want to model language, um, but how do I model a longer utterance you know and maintain the motor planning down the line of where these words are and how you know we get to those words from a motor planning standpoint um so i feel like let's transition into what do we do about all this
0: can i can i take a stab at it and then you tell me if i'm wrong or how you would do something different here can i take a swing yeah okay so today literally today i don't know if you can see my tongue i'm going to stick my tongue out do you see how it's blue did you see my blue? We tone? see it. We see it. <laughs> okay. So sorry if that grossed you out. But um, so I am in a school today with high schoolers, and I get to meet a girl for the first time. This girl, uh, out of her mouth, all I hear her say is, and that's the only sound she's making. We have cupcakes come around. She has an AAC device in front of her. I take, and I have an AAC device in front of me, take the, Uh, cupcake, hence the blue frosting that's on my tongue. And um, and I squeeze it and it gets all over my fingers and there's blue on my fingers too. You can't see my fingernails, but there's blue on there. And I go, "Uh uh-oh. And then I go find that. On the device, right? Uh oh. And said, a, so I say it verbally, but then I model it on the device, which sounds a lot like what you're saying is like, and I don't know if this kid is what this kid is. I mean, I know that they're going to be learning language somehow. And the way they do that is by me modeling it, right? So that's what I'm doing. Is that fair? Does that sound right? Yeah. Is that the answer is to have the intonation, which I would do again with any kid. Yeah. So. There's right. a lot
2: of commonalities yeah. um, with the way that you guys teach people how to model on AAC. Um, I, I'm assuming you teach this way too, Chris. I've seen Rachel's course, and, I mean, we are kind. We're saying the same thing. I think the problem that we want to address is that. The way that typical AAC systems are set up, they're set up for analytic language processors. So, uh uh-oh, could be a really awesome gestalt for this girl, Um, but then where are you going to go next, Chris? Are you going to start focusing on core words? Because that might not be the right approach for a gestalt language processor. Well, it's not the right approach for a stage one gestalt language processor. So... What I would do, and you guys, Marge and Rachel and Chris, correct me if I'm wrong, I am not an AAC expert, but what I would do, especially if a child has had this device for a while, is I'm going to try to collect my own language sample based off what they say verbally or with their device um, while we're engaging in something that they find enjoyable. Perhaps it is eating cupcakes or some other type of hobby that they have. Um, I say play therapy, but I do not only see little kids, I older kids, it would be hobbies is what I would call play therapy. So, okay. We're engaged in this thing. I'm going to either be recording or writing down whatever comes out from the AAC device or their mouth spontaneously. So not me saying, Oh, what's that? And they hit blue. No, I am not recording that. That is not a spontaneous language sample. But if I'm just smiling at them and like smiling and writing and they hit on their device, happy or something like that, I'm writing that down because that's spontaneous. They decided to communicate that to me.
0: Except who taught them what happy was.
1: And that's like, where I how do like, they know
0: what the word is.
1: And that's where I feel like the challenges with AAC is that we're working with complex communicators who are reliant solely on us modeling on their AAC, which is why I use the word taught, which I should have used the word model. But I'm thinking teaching because I'm really trying to find strategic, you know, gestalts or words or vocabulary to model in, you know, routine situations that happen a lot for the student that are motivating. And so I feel like that's the challenge is that like when we're talking about kids who have access to verbal speech, it's easy to model language and play-based opportunities and see what sticks. For AAC users, it's like we need to be highly strategic because we know they need a lot more repetition and modeling for the motor planning on their AAC in order to use it. It's not typical that a kid in a play-based opportunity who has an AAC system next to them, who's hearing all the language input, right? We could be modeling those gestalts verbally, but if we're not actually modeling them on the AAC, then the child will never learn how to use that on the AAC.
2: Okay, that so sense? the other thing I'm gonna bring up here is, this is my first language sample, right? I know this is so difficult to do in a lot of environments, but you would never, at least I at this point in my career, would never write a report based off one language sample. So I'm gonna end up seeing that kid five more times. I'm gonna end up getting videos from home and language samples. And I'm gonna see is happy something that's spontaneous for them or is that a taught gestalt are they using it when they're cooking with their mom in the kitchen and then they also used it when they saw me smiling and writing and then it's also when dad says it's time to go to mcdonald's and so is that part of them is that part of their language or they're only like labeling because they saw alex smile so now they're going to hit happy
1: And I think the challenge is in order for the child to then spontaneously say happy, I have to be, first of all, selecting that as something to model, right? Like I have to find that word and model it. Um, but then it has to be repeated, right. In lots of situations, at least in my experience with complex communicators, like that's the process. Sometimes words come, you know, more naturally and it's like modeled one time and it's like, I've got it. Right. Um, but I think that's the challenge is, you know, we got to a place of happy because we decided in that moment we were going to go to feelings and go to happy and model happy. Um, so I guess my question is how do we decide what we're actually modeling for gestalt language processors, because again, it's not, we have so many opportunities to model language immersion verbally for students who have the ability to have verbal speech and show us that they can latch onto one of those gestalts or something that they hear from us. But I think that the process is a little bit different for AAC in the sense that like, we need to be more strategic because it's not as easily learned because of the motor planning and all of those things that go into it.
2: But I think the process is the same. We are still modeling stage one gestalt. So I have a four-year-old right now on Proloquo, the $10 a month version, that version. And he has a folder of gestalts. And in there, I have put all of the gestalts he verbally says, plus the ones that I'm targeting. So we didn't even get into this on this episode at all, but... We're looking at giving this child a child in stage one gestalt, for transitions, for help, for shared joy, for surprises. We're looking at all of those categories. Okay, what are they missing? What do they need to communicate to us? So I have on there for him, one of my target things that I'm naturally modeling for him is um, uh, I don't like it. And then I also have no on there. so for protesting or self-advocacy, okay? So we are doing, he loves pretend food. So we're like playing with the pretend food and I'm like, oh, I don't like it. And I'm I'm modeling that on the um, device. Totally what Chris said with the cupcake and the uh-oh. So I think our approach is the same. It's just wrapping your mind around the fact that you are programming in and modeling gestalts, not core words or single words when a child is in stage one.
1: Which by the way, I'm doing that. (laughs) So I've taken your course, Alexandria. I think it's fantastic. Marge, I've read your book. Also think it's fantastic. Um, You know, and I think that, I've seen a lot of success with modeling specific gestalts, especially ones that are easier to mitigate. Um, I think for our listeners, the challenge is like, I mean, this is all new to everybody, right? So we're all trying to wrap our heads around how do we do this with technology that's not really working for us, Um, you know, and thinking we're always thinking long-term. So Chris and I are always talking about like design with the end in mind, support motor planning, support, you know, students right now, but also down the line. And I think the challenge is, you know, we can program specific gestalts in, but then how do we, like, what does mitigation look like? You know, when we're thinking about a single message in one button that says, I don't like it. Um, it just feels like super messy down the line to figure out like, how do we like mitigate that? And like, how do we program AAC to support, you know,
3: stage two, for example? Mm -hmm. Can I throw in one little comment that doesn't answer any questions whatsoever? Yes. But as I did a little survey this morning with um, the people who I would say, hey, bring me up to date with how you're looking at Gestalt language processing and AAC. And so I actually, maybe we could do something with this list later on, but each individual wrote out what they felt were the top three principles that they would use. And these are SLPs, these are parents, and one AAC expert who talked to Chris just this morning. And so um, how all this fits together is that particular, and this is uh, Kate Flaxman said, that she felt that this stage that we are in now, as professionals, in our learning curve, our learning curve, is that everything that is customized now is the N of one approach. That each individual is an individual. And that um, we really need to come together to recognize some of the principles. And you guys are talking about older students. And obviously that's another step removed from the four-year-old and the little kids who we hope haven't been overtaught And we can really do some things that honor their communication. But here's the one comment I'll make. And that is, Kate said that from her perspective of coordinating with many, many other experts, um, individuals, parents, SLPs, that just the inclusion of a child's favorite gestalt in their system changes everything and that the trust factor goes exponentially up and the communication just blossoms and if if we as a whole group can do that then you know we can have all kinds of experimentation and the ends of one which of course is Jennifer Cronks you know blog which she called that because her boys name starts with N, but you know, that, that experimentation stage that we are in is so fruitful. So
0: I... March. Oh, go ahead, Chris. All right. So, well, I have an experience from this morning, uh, another <laughs> one, Um talking to the speech therapist just before I go into the room with the, with the cupcakes, she was telling me about another student. And this other student is like, we've had uh, an AAC device for two or three years now no progress, no interest, No, not, not even looking at it. We don't need it, Chris. You can pick it up. And I was like, wait a second. Tell me more about this student because what's what are the o- other options here? This is, clearly I'm in high school here. And um, she said, uh, well, you know, she started describing how he uses echolalia. And I said, Marjorie, exactly what I just heard you said. I said, well, wait, tell me some of these that he says. Like, what does he say? Well, to listen to this thing about octopuses and then, and then he'll repeat back the octopus phrase. It's like, well, okay. What I think I've heard people tell me from the podcast is why don't we program that thing in there? Cause at least it'll show him that, you know, you don't know what you're doing. At least it's showing some respect. Like, hey, I respect what you're saying, and look, I'm gonna put it on here. Maybe you can then use that later, you know. And then from there, we can maybe what I'm hearing you say next later, uh, Alexandria. If I'm understanding you correctly, is now we can start to break that down. We can mitigate it and say, but at least we're Marjorie. What I think you just said is just respect what the just respect the kid. So put it on there, right? Is that?
1: Mm-hmm. Yep. I will say I 100% agree with this. I've changed my practice in that way. And it has been a game changer for all of the students that I'm working with for kids who are like, don't care about that device in my backpack, collecting dust, never charged. Like these kids are going to their backpack getting it out to communicate their favorite gestalts. Um, And so I do think that that's a takeaway here. You know, I think I love how you simplified that Marge, because I feel like we're all like in the weeds trying to figure out what to do. And it's like, this is a takeaway. I feel like the two takeaways are like acknowledge those, right? Because so often we're just taught to, you know, no movie talk, right? Alexandria, like, you know, and just like, just ignore it. It doesn't mean anything. So acknowledge it. And then the step, the next step is plug that into an AAC system, because that's how we're going to get kids bought into this technology that will eventually help their communication development. Um, so I think that is perfect. Wonderful.
0: That's a great way to summarize it, I guess. <laughs> yeah.
1: All right. Are there any other things? I mean, there, I feel like we could keep talking for like hours. There's so much to go <laughs> well, over. I have so I, many questions.
0: I do have one, one kind of last lingering question that sort of is plaguing me. So uh, something I learned long ago was uh, something called the least dangerous assumption, right? So this least dangerous assumption is when you don't know choose the thing that's least dangerous and what I'm hearing us say a little bit is um tell me again maybe if I'm if I'm summarizing some of this correctly sometimes you don't know we have a kid that is completely non-speaking and we don't know what kind of language processing or language processor they if they're dual which one they're more prevalent and if you're if they're separate then which one they are. So what's least dangerous? Like could, could that could be another takeaway from this is what do we assume? What do we go with as what's least dangerous for that? What do you think?
3: Well, it depends on who that individual is, of course, and how old that individual is and what has happened in that individual's life up till now. But I think what we're learning is that, and is that individual autistic, um, et cetera. But I think what we're learning is that if we presume that an individual is an analytic processor, we are probably doing a lot of harm to a lot of kids. If we presume that that individual might be a gestalt processor, we're probably not going to do any harm by putting octopus's garden in there. I mean, who's not going to like that? You know, I mean, probably there are all kinds of people who wouldn't like it. I don't know that I would like it. But um, but there would be something in that individual's life that if you put it on their AAC, they might say, wow, that is me, whether I'm analytic or gestalt. So that would seem like the least um, dangerous assumption to me would be doing something that is mine.
2: Yeah, I, I totally agree because at the very least, you're connecting with them and building trust which we absolutely need to have if we're going to work with a child. Um, But I think the problem in going in and assuming that they're analytic, like we all have because we didn't know. So anytime we got a kid that needed AAC, we would assume they were analytic. Um, Unfortunately, the damage that we're doing is these kids stay stuck in stage one. They amass these hundreds of single words and it goes nowhere. Or there's no buy-in with their device and they're not interested and it's uncharged and collecting dust, like you said, Rachel. Um, so I say the least dangerous thing is to go in and try to build a relationship with that child. You know that they're into DORA. You're going to put DORA on their device.
1: And I'll just say in my own clinical practice over the last year, as I've been really you know, deep diving in gestalt language processing... For my students who are completely non-speaking, which I feel like that's the challenging population, right? For our students who are showing us that they have some gestalt, it's like, awesome, let's plug them in. That's easy. It's for our kids who are completely non-speaking, you know, what do we do? And I found that, you know, I will do both, right? I'll do some single word modeling, but I'll also program some, you know, gestalts that match the students kind of motivation, excitement, intentions, and then I see which one are they more likely to go utilize spontaneously. Um, and that's been really effective. And I've had some students who, you know, are doing a little bit of both, but it's like, wow, they do so much better with that chat folder where they're opening it up and they're saying, I loved that. And, you know, all these really emphatic geschults that we're programming in. Um, and so I feel like for our kids who are non-speaking, um, and maybe, maybe the blanket assumption should just be, we should be adding these types of, of things to an AAC system, which is not, uncommon. We've been using quick fire phrases for AAC systems for, you know, ever, you know, it's not something that like is brand new. Um, but I think just considering that we don't want to just blanket Single word, core word approach. Um, we can do a little bit of both and see, you know, what happens clinically. Um, and like I said, over the last year, clinically, I've seen some kids are like they're in that chat folder, and I'm like, you're probably a gestalt language processor. Like you're responding to those, you know, longer phrases um, and gestalts that I'm programming in, and you're not as responsive to, you know, single words um, as as much as you are in the in the the longer words or the, sorry, the longer phrases.
3: And probably if you were my SLP, I would go along with that. And I would not fault you for kind of testing me. But if if in my own world, I would want to do the best job I could to find out from a family, um, to do that assessment um, over a longer period of time, um, to see if I could really earn that child's trust by not having to test them. Now, I realize if you're talking about high school, et cetera, et cetera, and you never know exactly what a child's you know language history has been, but if a child has been in ABA for some period of time and, and that child perceives, and it wouldn't be you, Rachel. I would trust you. But if it were somebody else, I might say, is she really trying to get me to do X? you know and then there's that question of trust and so if it's possible like in Alex's clinic for with a 4-year-old to go back to the family and know that deep history and really work on that trust element and as we do a handout someday with all these things that i wrote down from everybody's input trust was number 1 mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. I mean, Marge, I have a phrase, inspire, don't require. Like I am totally on board here. I do not think we should be getting testing kids. I do not think we should be trying to get them to say anything. Um, You know, I think it's just challenging for our therapists who are like, okay, I have this device. I need to model language on it. Um, I'm not exactly sure where to start. Um, And so a lot of the work that I do is trying to figure out, like, like you said, doing the detective work, talking to families, figuring out situations where, you know, a really good opportunity to model, you know, some language would be and then kind of reverse engineering it. Um, because I think you're right at the end of the day, like we have to have our students trusting that we're there to support them and what they intrinsically are motivated to say, not what I think you should say or what you should say in this situation. Um, and so I feel like following a child's lead is definitely something that we talk a lot about on this podcast.
0: Okay. Here's my last question. One of the things that this podcast, um, prides itself on is honoring the evidence-based practice from ASHA. So that model is research plus professional uh, knowledge plus AAC user perspectives. So is there someone that you could reach out to or connect us with that is an adult gestalt language processor that uses AAC, and then we can talk to them about what worked and what didn't work? That could be really
2: valuable for people. Yeah,
3: perfect. Perfect.
2: We definitely have some of
1: those. (laughs) Yay. Well, we'll definitely like have them on the podcast um, because yeah, I mean, having AAC users talk about their experiences, you know, something that we're, we find um, incredibly valuable and that we try to amplify their voices on this podcast. So um, we would love the connection to have um, them come on if they're open to it. wonderful. Well, thank you both so much for all of this. Thank
2: you for this. It's been wonderful. Really good, lengthy discussion.
1: (laughs) Yeah, we're definitely going to break this into two parts, which is totally fine. And, you know, thank you guys so much. I know we're kind of pioneering new territory here and you know, there's a lot of questions that people have. And I feel like we did a really good job of kind of just like figuring out where the gaps in knowledge still are and, you know, how we can kind of wrap our our heads around this in our day-to-day practice. Um, because, you know, I, I'm, I'm super open. I know Chris, you're super open. Like we're all open to these new ideas. Um, we just need to kind of have some ideas and and talk to each other about like, what do we do and how do we do this?
0: Marge, are you like, but they're not new ideas. They're from 1985. (laughs) (laughs) And. And then we just lost it somewhere. It slipped through our fingers. Is that how you're we feeling? We actually <laughs> didn't
2: get to that, Marge. You didn't well, talk about yeah, but, why uh, we don't know about this.
3: We'll do that another time.
2: Yeah, another time. But, but
3: really, really, thanks for reinforcing the idea that it's not new. Yeah. You're <laughs> absolutely right.
1: And I think I think when I reference new, I'm talking about this fusion of AAC, English non-language processing. Like that is a new frontier that we're all trying to figure out. Um, you know, so I think that that, I know the Gestalt language processing has been around for a long time, Um, but like figuring out how do we actually do this in our clinical practice? Like, what do I do with this AAC system and this Gestalt language processor? Like, I'm not really sure. Um, And that's where things like social media, Facebook groups, I've learned so much from just people's experiences. Um, So it's been really helpful. And Alexandra, your social media has been amazing. So I definitely recommend everyone go check that out. Um, You have a lot of really great clips of, you know, what does Gestalt language processing look like in different stages and, all those things. So um, thank you guys for the work that you're doing and bringing this to the forefront and for coming on to share it all with us and our, all of our listeners. It's it's super great and we're really appreciative.
3: Well, you are very welcome. Thank you.
1: Awesome. So for Talking With Tech, I'm Rachel Madel, joined by Chris Bouguet, Marge Blanc, and Alexandria Zakos. Thank you guys so much for listening and we'll talk to you guys next week.